You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. If he thinks I can help him, so be it. When I say the name Dan Quayle, it's almost like the punchline to a joke. There is more to the story. I am going to talk about it. But I have to acknowledge that just saying the name Dan Quayle conjures up the image in probably the majority of listeners' minds. Not everybody. I mean this in a very serious way and with respect that I have to all vice presidents I'll cover on this series, all the historical figures, people who occupied the office that I will talk about on this series. But it is the image that I think it conjures up for a lot of people. And by his own admission, he's a VP who didn't get the brass ring, wasn't, say, successful, and in some ways became a problem for the president that he served. And that president's own son and advisors thought so. Now, the funny thing about that is, and we're going to talk about it, in a way, there's more to even that story. He might have been more helpful than we ever knew. If he thinks I can help him, so be it. Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But there's something else that I want to discuss with Dan Quayle, and it's, if I was doing this podcast, say, three years before, I wouldn't bring this up because it didn't occur yet. And I don't think on the list of vice presidents, of those who didn't become president and therefore are presidents, I don't think there's a vice president that 28 years after their vice presidency would be in the news again and play a significant role, albeit a quiet, behind-the-scenes one, but a significant role in the most important news story of the year, and that is 2021. It's the events around January 6th. Now, in December 2020, Mike Pence, the vice president of the United States at that time, is in a quandary. He presides as the vice president of the Senate over the meeting that will count the votes, will certify the electoral votes. The current president he serves under, Donald Trump, wants him to do something. It's not even clear constitutionally how he would do that, to not allow that to happen, and then kick the election to the House of Representatives, where Trump feels very much that he could win. Mike Pence wanted advice from someone he knew, and he called Dan Quayle, who also was a vice president from Indiana, now living in Arizona. Quayle is 74 years old at this point. He's no longer the boyish figure, the image that we have from the 1988 election and his vice presidency thereafter. Quayle says, why are you even entertaining this? He said, I 
remember my own meeting, January 6, 1993, actually, 28 years earlier. You have to, I had to certify Bill Clinton's victory and Al Gore's victory over myself and George H.W. Bush, the president that Quayle served. All you do is count the votes. That's it. Here's what Bob Woodward said. Trump's effort to cajole Pence was a dark, Rube Goldberg-like fantasy, Quayle believed, and could precipitate a constitutional crisis. Mike, you have no flexibility on this. Nothing. Put it away. And Pence says, well, that's what I've been trying to tell him, but he doesn't want to listen. There are other guys saying, I've got powers I can use. Quayle's like, you don't. Pence pressed again, is there anything? Forget it, Quayle said. Let it go. Don't even talk about it. You don't know the position I'm in, Pence says, apparently. And Quayle says, yes, I do. And indeed, Dan Quayle was a member of this small club, serving under a president, not always able to do everything you want to do, not able to do everything that might suit your own politics in every situation. Gosh, not. On January 7th, after the despicable events at the Capitol, Quayle phones Mike Pence again and said, you did the right thing. This doesn't come out till Woodward's reporting. And, you know, if we didn't have a Bob Woodward out there or people like them, we might never find these type of things out. The young Indiana senator was approaching the podium at the riverfront in New Orleans in 1988. He wanted to hear the president speak. The president was about to announce his vice presidential candidate. And it's true that he knew that he had been in the running that press had mentioned him, but very few knew his name. This was a sitting vice president of the Reagan administration, which had just had two terms. There were plenty of people to pick from. Secret service agents grab him and say, Senator, you've got to be on that podium. You're the nominee. Oh, oh. Bush's team had tried to reach Quayle, but he was in transit. And the Secret Service had to have a photograph of Quayle to be able to know who they were picking. No one knew who Dan Quayle was outside of, say, Indiana or Washington politics. They'd know in a few hours. George H.W. Bush knew as well, because every time he campaigned around the country, he kept a yellow legal pad and wrote down what people told him. Congressmen, senators that might make good candidates. And this enriched the pool of candidates he would select from. We have a lot of hindsight on the events of 1988. What an election it was, by the way. I think it's one of the defining elections. And it's hard for some to think this way, to think in the present then, the contemporary, I'm sure. But on paper, it's a brilliant choice. Uh, Bush was under attack for his conservative credentials. He seemed an old president. And he's nine years older than his opponent. Democrats were running that slightly younger governor from Massachusetts who's talking reform, who's talking, you know, management competency, doing good things. Quayle was a Republican congressman, beat an eight-term Democrat congressman as Jimmy Carter is elected in 1976. Then he turns around and beats Birch Bayh in 1980, a three-term senator and a legend in Indiana politics and a legend on the left side of the spectrum in Congress, really. The author of the 25th and 26th Amendments, among other things. Twelve years in Washington, Quayle has by the time he's picked. He's not a newbie, but he looks it. He's to the right of Reagan and criticizes Reagan on the IMF treaty with Russia. 
uh, with, with the Soviet Union, which means that Bush had a kind of instant protection from criticism on the conservative side by picking this young conservative. He's telegenic. He looks the part. Here's Kate Anderson Brower, whose uh, book, First in Line, Presidents, Vice Presidents, and the Pursuit of Power, is a really good one to read. It shocked everyone when 64-year-old Bush picked 41-year-old Quayle, the first baby boomer on a national ticket. Bush decided on Quayle because he wanted to appeal to younger voters, and Quayle balanced the ticket regionally, handling from the Midwest, while Bush had ties to Texas and New England. Yeah, that regional balance is important for so many vice presidential candidates, and it's never really changed. Still an important factor. One of the reasons Indiana keeps showing up. I mean, there'll be another Indiana vice president in the future. You've, you've, you've have everyone from uh, Charles Fairbanks, Thomas Hendricks, Schuyler Colfax, and of course, Thomas Marshall. It's an excellent choice on paper, but minutes after he's picked, there are problems. And I talked about it on my other cast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Veep announcement down to the wire. Conservatives continued their public pleading with Bush to balance the ticket with a voice from the right. You would help us greatly to excite the rank and file, the grassroots, if you select a strong conservative on the social, moral, economic, political issues. Reagan, they felt it in, in the conservative circles, Reagan had been too soft with Gorbachev with the particularly the, the various treaties that have been signed. And so a proponent of um, a more conservative hardline policy, also a young senator who had defeated Birch Bayh in 1980, came in on the Reagan revolution, was Dan Quayle. So he's picked. If he thinks I can help him, so be it. Very little time to prepare. Good evening. Dan Quayle is on the hot seat. The elation surrounding the selection of the Indiana senator to be George Bush's running mate was stifled today by some nagging questions. Dan Quayle prepared to address the GOP National Convention this afternoon as controversy swirled around his upcoming nomination as the Republican vice presidential candidate. It comes out just within a few hours of his choice that Dan Quayle had served in the Indiana National Guard, uh, Air National Guard, during the Vietnam War. Quayle is the first person put on a national ticket born after World War II. So it's the first time, really, that this issue is coming up in a significant way. Then the story builds, and soon the Bush campaign 88 is answering not questions about their nominee Michael Dukakis that they're going to be taking on, but about his own running mate. Comes out that perhaps some strings were pulled, maybe a call was made, but there was a waiting list. There's some disagreement whether there's a waiting list or not, and did he advance in that waiting list because of who he was? His father was a judge. Reporters are focusing almost as much on Quayle as they are on Bush. And you have this particular rally in uh, Dan Quayle's hometown where the crowd is starting to get angry at the reporters. And Dan Quayle moves over and shifts the position to where he's answering questions to where the reporters are. And there's a big crowd. And every time the reporters ask a question about his National Guard service that they don't like, there's booze. And every time Dan Quayle answers, there's cheers. Finally, one of the reporters says, is this an appropriate place to have an interview? And this, in 1988, just seems a preview of some of the battles between crowd audiences and reporters that we've seen recently. 
There was another scandal too. It wasn't just the military service scandal. There was also a question about the lobbyist Paula Parkinson, who was accused of trading sexual favors for legislation. And Quayle had stayed at her place along with other congressmen when he was in the House in 1980, so eight years before the election. There were three other congressmen, and all four of them voted the way that Paula Parkinson's client wanted after their stay. Government was building a case against Parkinson, uh, and now all of all of the meetings were coming out. Quayle had one of them. That was dwarfed, though, by the military issue and his answers. So when you consider that the announcement and the convention boost is one job of a vice presidential candidate, and that one goes back to the days when they were really not expected to be much more than a name on a ticket and a ceremonial officer in the nation's capital, presiding over the Senate because the Senate could be evenly split with two members from each state. I mean, that's one of the key reasons they find um, the office of vice president for. Well, you're going to have two states, so it's always going to be a little split here. It's always going to be an even number. How do we break ties? The vice president. Dan Quayle doesn't get to execute that particular constitutional function. As vice president, by the way, as uh, zero tiebreaker votes, it was a uh, pretty strong Democratic majority in the Senate at that time. You know, the main job of uh, the VP candidate is to have a great announcement before the convention and run those numbers up, you know, create a big momentum boost for the ticket. We've talked about in this cast before, can you even have success as a a vice president? How do you measure what it is? And I think very often it's a custom job. Other political offices are defined by the the occupant and defined by what voters are. And there's certain broad ways you can judge a president and certain broad ways that you can judge um, a member of Congress and things like that. But when it comes to the vice president, it's very much a made-to-order job. But the main thing is you have to improve the performance of the administration you serve and improve the performance of the um, ticket during the campaign. At least on the surface, Quayle isn't judged to do so. As we discussed, you know, the VP candidate's job is to look good in the convention, make the speech, you know. And then since 1976, they have a second job, which is to participate in at least one vice presidential debate. It is not just age, it's accomplishments, it's experience. I have far more experience than many others. So Quayle is really keen on scoring a win in that debate in doing very well against an accomplished senator, Lloyd Benson of Texas, picked by Michael Dukakis. And this is long forgotten history now, and few people watch the tape on this VP debate. But up until the famous moment that it would engender, you know, Quayle's doing a pretty decent job. Mike Dukakis, the Democratic candidate, picks Lloyd Benson. He's a senator from Texas. There's a couple reasons. One, I think he wants to kind of take it to Bush because Lloyd Benson is the person who gets his Senate seat by beating Bush in 1970 election. He's much more conservative than Mike Dukakis, who's considered a liberal in this election. And that's the point that Quayle wants to move on, you know. Yeah, Benson's a well-liked person, but he and Mike Dukakis don't agree. He's liberal. Benson wants to cut taxes. Mike Dukakis 
according to Dan Quayle in this debate, has raised taxes. He's raised taxes five times. He's tax hike Mike. He'll cut aid to the Contras. Benson doesn't want to cut that aid. He'll leave Central America open to the Soviets. The Contras are fighting communists in Nicaragua. And in terms of cutting the deficit, Benson says he wants to cut the deficit. Dukakis sometimes says he wants to cut the deficit. Well, Senator Mike Dukakis has more debt in Massachusetts than any governor. How's he going to do as president? He's scoring points, Quayle is, in this debate uh, by showing the difference between Benson, who a lot of people like, and the candidate that's actually at the top of the ticket, Mike Dukakis. And as to Benson, he does attack lunches and breakfasts as he's had with big donors. He's the number one political action committee fundraiser, he says of Benson. He used to have a $10,000 breakfast club. Lobbyists would come down. I'm sure they weren't paying for cornflakes. They go back and forth on political contributions. Benson points out how he's also raised money from lobbyists. They talk about savings and loans. There's even an early question on climate change. Benson, who's from Texas, was reluctant to attack fossil fuels, but suggests more natural gas. Quayle said he'd go after acid rain polluters. The question comes up about Quayle's qualifications to be president. Comes up once. And they say, what steps would you take if you became president? I would say a prayer. I will be prepared to deal with the people in the Bush administration if that unfortunate event would ever occur. Iterates that he has experience. He has those 12 years. He's been in the House and Senate. At one point, he starts naming um, arms control terms that he knows about, various missile terms that he knows about that a governor may not. The question comes up a second time, and he says, he points out that he has more Washington experience than the top of their ticket, Mike Dukakis. I remember watching this live as a teenager. Um, I remember watching it again, I believe, in 2016. It aired on C-SPAN. Watched bits of it again for this. And, you know, it's it's pretty even if you ask me. It's probably going to go down to that quail because there was so much in the press attacking him, if he does a decent job against Benson, who's a really long-time senator, um, you know, it's probably going to go as a win for Quayle. Then it comes. Tom Brokaw asks, Senator Quayle, I don't mean to beat this drum, but the last time you were asked about your experience, you said it was a hypothetical. Well, it's not a hypothetical, Senator. The very reason for the debate tonight is to see who could potentially be a VP, which means who could potentially be president. Quayle says, this is now the fourth time in a row that I've answered this question. Brokaw reminds him it's the third time. Okay, three times. Goes over his experience. It's as much as Mike Dukakis. More at the federal level. 12 years of service in the House and the Senate. All of those missiles. And by the way, I've had as much time in Congress as Jack Kennedy did. And this is something that he's been saying on the campaign trail a few times. And then Judy Woodruff, the debate moderator, goes, Senator Benson? Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. That was uncalled for, Senator, he said. You're the one making the comparison. Later, when they'd have their phone call, Vice President Bush 
would say to Senator Quayle, that was a cheap shot. It might have been, but it certainly stuck. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. But there's a point Kate Anderson Brower makes, which is really a point that Lee Atwater had made to George H.W. Bush, which got down to Quayle, that Quayle's downside in the 1988 election was an upside for Bush. Lee Atwater, the campaign strategist, said, the press is chasing you. You're the best rabbit we have going. Quayle had actually talked to Nixon, a former vice president, about this very thing. So he already knew this theory. The press has to attack someone. They've got to either get their teeth in on the presidential candidate or attack the vice presidential candidate. Better it was him. I would say even among people who study presidential history and elections, probably Nine out of 10 people wouldn't even think about that. But when you look at it, what happens in 1988? Quayle's really a non-factor in that election. It's all about Mike Dukakis. Uh, it's also about the Reagan record and Iran-Contra and Bush's ability to dance around charges that he was involved in that scandal. Um, the economy getting better. And uh, I like to think Gorbachev played a big role in that we're seeing progress with the Soviet Union during the end of Reagan's term, for which George Bush was vice president. Those are the factors in the election. Dan Quayle just acted as lightning rod, best rabbit. And I say this, and I appreciate the, the take in uh, Kate Anderson Brower's book, and I say this putting it out there as a, as a kind of theory. I think it's one of many, I think it's a complex situation though, more than even what I just described. I don't think it's entirely just about best rabbit. You know, he really did provide a distraction for this campaign when they're trying to get going. So I think it's a mix of things. Um, ideally, you might want a vice president who might take the battle to him a little bit without really um, causing a lot of distraction. But heck, in the end, it works for 1988. Now, when they're elected, Quayle is now vice president. All right. American system, 12th Amendment. You got a top of the ticket, a bottom of the ticket. Most people are aiming at the top of the ticket when they vote. So whatever they think about Quayle, he's in there as vice president. Funny thing about the 1988 election. The person by polls that was the most popular, the four people running, Benson, Quayle, Bush, Dukakis, in that election. The most popular per person is Benson, and he doesn't get office. Quayle's sitting in the vice presidential office. That's how it works. And George H.W. Bush had been a vice president. Didn't always like the relationship between he 
And Ronald Reagan, he sees that, wants to have the weekly lunches, have a more consultative, modern vice presidency. But he's also got jobs for Dan Quayle during this administration. And Bush has got a problem. Since the beginning of his career, a lot of people feel that he's a more liberal Republican. Now, some of this is that it ran against Reagan, and he's never quite shook that. And then when you have some of the personal tension, you know, maybe light, maybe under the radar between he and the Reagans at times, uh, not a close, warm relationship, politically fine, but not a close, warm relationship per se. Um, you add that all together, and at a time when the conservatives in the party and particularly religious fundamentalists are ascendant and you are, you know, you need a blocker, let's just say. And Dan Quayle provides that for the administration. So I think I want to look at this in a more three-dimensional way than just a standard story. Like, is this terrible vice president? Well, what if Bush had picked somebody who is, say, more liberal? Yeah, not a lot of candidates. But if he picked someone more liberal... How is that VP might have been more popular in the press and with people generally? But how's it going to help him politically with the problems that the administration had? Quayle's the one that can take those meetings. It's an eventful administration. The U.S. goes to war in the Gulf War against Iraq and Saddam Hussein and successfully liberates the nation of Kuwait. You know, that's a victory for the administration, clearly. And George H.W. Bush goes way up in terms of opinion polls. But there's other deals that don't work out so well. And one of them is that Bush had pledged not to raise taxes and then has budget meetings in 1990 where he's essentially forced to because of the deficit. Here's what Quayle describes in Standing Firm, his memoir. One day in December 1988, we met at the vice presidential residence, still George Bush's home, not mine, for a discussion of the bipartisan commission to lower the deficit. Dick Darman, soon to head the office of ONB, wasn't there, but Jim Baker, Nick Brady, Bob Teeter, the president's pollster, were. Baker whispered to me, watch these guys, meaning Brady and Teeter. They're going to try to get him to raise taxes. Sure enough, he was right. Teeter says he doesn't have any choice. He's probably going to have to raise taxes. Whoa, I thought. This was an administration that had gotten itself elected on Read My Lips. No news taxes. The pledge made in New Orleans. And before even swearing in, we're talking about breaking the central promise. Baker, to his credit, said, well, we're not going to do it. With the congressional elections just months off and the prospect of prolonged budgetary bloodletting bloodletting in between, the president called for a budget summit with the Democrats. And he brought up the argument that for the deficit to come down, taxes would have to go up. I was out in California on a fundraising trip. But when I got the news, in the shower actually, I probably could have looked at the should have looked at the drain because that's where the Republican Party's best issue was headed. As vice president, he didn't really have any other options, you know, in an administration like that, but to be a good soldier, make the public sales pitch for the package. President agreed to abide by what came out of the budget summit, didn't want a domestic crisis while there was so much to cope with with the situation with Saddam Hussein in Iraq. It's after the riots in Los Angeles, and this is a very eventful time um, that Dan Quayle starts to talk about what he views are the roots of these riots, the breakdown in the family. A single sentence, he says, pages into my speech would create the real ideological firestorm. It doesn't help matters when primetime TV has Murphy Brown 
a character who supposedly epitomizes today's intelligent, highly paid professional woman, mocking the importance of fathers by bearing a child alone and calling it just another lifestyle choice. It doesn't help matters, I said, when primetime TV has a Murphy Brown character who supposedly epitomized today's intelligent, highly paid professional woman mocking the importance of fathers by bearing a child alone and calling it just another lifestyle choice. Later, he'd say, one of my aides said a pop TV reference would help get attention for my speech that it otherwise wouldn't get. The press coverage was not good. They said Quayle was out of touch and insensitive to single mothers. Bush's daughter, Dorothy, it turned out, was a single mother. That didn't escape attention from others. The Bushes were very clear they liked the speech. But when the TV character struck back on the show, now you had a war with a fictional character, and that didn't go over well. But even that wasn't what would become the big issue of the next campaign, 1992, for Quayle. When you make a mistake in the images-all world of politics, you want to recover it from it as fast as you can. I didn't do it in this story. Quayle's in New Jersey. He's eager to prove himself now as an asset, rather than just a good rabbit, rather than just being the lightning rod here. But as Marilyn Quayle noted, every time Quayle speaks, the reporters are looking for errors that they ignore in other people. She's probably right about that. I mean, I think a lot of this that comes down to Quayle um, is um, stronger scrutiny. My husband could make five speeches a day for 25 months and never make a mistake. He makes one mistake, it's aired and aired and aired. Because the incident that's going to define him in the second election that he's part of the ticket on is um, takes about 30 seconds. He's visiting an elementary school in New Jersey, and he led a spelling bee for sixth grade students. Working from an inaccurate flashcard, which was prepared by a teacher, and he was simply reading what was on it. He corrects a 12-year-old who spells the word potato, P-O-T-A-T-O, on the blackboard. On Dan Quayle's card, there's an E on the end, P-O-T-A-T-O-E. He tells the boy to please add the E on the end. They have a press conference right after it to hear Quayle tell the story. He had just met with Boris Yeltsin, the Russian leader at the time. There were many events that they were handling in Congress, and he expected to get all these questions. And what they wanted to ask about was something, remember, he doesn't even remember that an error was made. He comes into this little conference in the school now and is expecting questions about other things. Doesn't get. They ask him about the potato mistake. Reporters had gone to the dictionaries just to double check that they weren't crazy. Um, I'm not the world's greatest speller, Quayle said, and I could bore you with a lot of stories about other politicians' deficiencies in the area, but I'm going to try to concentrate on the ridiculous facts. Well, it's weird even when I hear Quayle's explanation that he would even think that that explanation would get him farther than how the events are reported, but here's how it is. It's basically, he says, well, what we should have done is got the teacher out and have the teacher say, look, I was the one who handed the card. And Quayle was just reading off the card he was given. You know, if they had, would have got ahead of it, explained it better, maybe bring the kid out and say, sorry, kid, you know, uh, you spell better than a vice president, something like that. I mean, that might have been helpful. But he, he says it like it really would have, and I'm not so sure because I think for most people, 
they would say, well, if you saw the E on the end of potato, you probably should correct it. It's a very common word. And what's strange about a lot of the accounts that Quayle gives is that he keeps saying that, oh, I found people who spell it that way. My wife, wasn't, who's a really good speller, wasn't even sure whether it had an E on the end. Well, the reporters had to check the dictionaries um, while the story was going on. Well, they, they probably checked it to be sure. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. May I guess... You know, there's some argument to be made there, but no, it's a pretty common word. This isn't like a something where you have two spellings. Certainly, if there's a plural, you put an S on it. That may have been part of the mistake with the card. Not sure. That event would come to define um, Quail, you know, the Democratic Convention that year. They're going to bring this boy up to the stage and, um, and they're going to spell potato right. <laughs> um, it was one of those rare times when I actually felt like exploding at the staff, Quayle says. Quayle's a pretty calm person, and that's, so that's an extraordinary moment. Um, it's better staff work probably could have protected him from that moment. Quayle gets baked, mashed, and fried, said the headline on one tabloid. Howard Kurtz, the Washington Post's media critic, did a story on the whole episode and pointed out the incident got so much play because it seemed like a perfect illustration of what people thought about me anyway. This is what Quayle said. I wasn't alone. It's like Bill Clinton when he says, I didn't inhale about marijuana. It seemed to underscore his reputation for slick evasiveness. I think that's really correct, that it shows a lot about reporting, that reporters are kind of writing stories and finding things to put in what are very common assumptions. You're probably getting away with that, uh, away from that now with podcasts, social media, blogging, a little more um, elongated discussions of national events. 
where you can explain nuances and probably I don't know that in the in the era of social media that that potato thing would look better as a video that gone viral but you would have had more explanations about the teacher and the cards and that side of it quail has a problem not only with the press but also with bush's campaign team and and the bush administration several members of it it will come out later in their various memoirs that jim baker bush's longtime aide former secretary of state says quail should be off the ticket george w bush the president's son says that he should be dropping quail and suggests dick cheney then the defense secretary as the replacement bill crystal who is at this time dan quail's chief of staff doesn't like this these stories that are starting to be leaked that dan quail might be dropped from the ticket and you know he feels like he's at war with his own administration also with the murphy brown thing feels that the white house didn't back him up president agreed with him on his murphy brown speech well the president was better than his team he says marlon fitzwater the press spokesperson's first remark was supportive of my values oriented speech but when the campaign folks decided that no one should be criticizing a popular show in the middle of an election they made marlon go back and praise murphy brown for exhibiting pro-life values instead of supporting me and trying to focus the country on an important issue despite the urging of baker despite the urging of uh his son, and many other. George H.W. Bush decides to keep Dan Quayle on the ticket. And one of the reasons is, is he feels if they drop him, that'll show that he made a mistake. And he's admitting that he made a mistake in judgment. It'll be a big news story that they drop Quayle from the ticket. After the vice presidency, Quayle did what most vice presidents do. He was out of politics officially. There was a discussion about him running in 1996. I think, you know, Bob Dole had it sewn up pretty well, and there were other candidates. By his own admission, he didn't get the brass ring. And I think if you look broadly at what a vice president should do, it's hard to see Quayle as the a successful vice president. You know, it's not the part of George H.W. Bush that people mention and say was a great idea. I get the Lee Atwater thing. I do think the best rabbit. I do think there's some campaign tricks. And I do think that that was um, a possibility, you know, drew a lot of attention from some of Bush's problems. For instance, although his taking on his biggest critic there, Dan Rather, early on um, about the Iran-Contra story, even though it you know, it was kind of not a real defense of himself, uh, talking about Dan Rather and Wimbledon or whatever, but taking that story head on did a lot of good for himself there. So the election became Dukakis first Bush. So maybe there was a little bit of a lightning rod factor. I do question if Dukakis was a better candidate, if we'd still be saying that, you know, if that Lee Atwater theory would still hold up. You know, Lee Atwater is a, a on one hand, a, a brilliant campaigner in many ways, and on the other, some of the press thought it was a nutcase. Don't listen to that guy. You know, he's just coming up with stuff. So there's that kind of mix. Certainly was a precursor of the type of campaigns that you see now. Putting that aside, have to go with his own assessment. He's not one of the most successful vice presidents, even if the office's accomplishments are hard to define. He certainly, although he talked about running in 96 and then set up an exploratory committee in 2000, even attacks... Uh, George W. Bush, who 
probably wasn't his friend that much in the administration anyway, uh, as somebody who would need on-the-job training. So he has no qualms about attacking the son of the man that he served under when he's running for president. But his campaign would be very brief, just a few months, and he'd have that exploratory committee. Never gave himself a path to the presidency, never a factor in politics um, since. I do think from a more three-dimensional perspective, when you have a vice president who is ideologically different than the president they serve, so you have um, Hendricks fits here, uh, certainly Adelaide Stevenson. So both of Cleveland's vice presidents are people who are ideologically different than him. Yeah, Garner and FDR. I mean, you're not going to get a person who's as involved in everything where you can clearly see because they're really coming from a different role and playing a different role, like giving the president a break from some of their political critics. You know, in a more successful administration that perhaps got reelected, you might see that as a uh, something you can point to as accomplishment. So really a behind in the, you know, within the beltway, big accomplishment. Um, and the, the only way we would know that is, is, you know, that's something that like the president has to, has to say. But I also feel this, that, you know, their role in, let's say, being odd budsmen uh, in bringing up issues that are differently from the steamroller of the president and their close aides and what they want to do and saying, hey, what about this, is sometimes an underappreciated role that only a vice president, the vice president is the only one that can go into that room and be constitutionally equal somewhat to the president. I'll mention, I'll use the language on this show sometimes. Say hey, that, you know, the, the president they serve under or work for or whatever, but they don't. They're elected just like a president is. And the only one that sometimes can go in the room and offer that contrary advice. And I think that's sometimes underappreciated. That's certainly where Quail fits. Thank you for listening to the Vice Presidents of the United States podcast. If you like this program, please give us a review on particularly on Apple Podcasts, but wherever you're listening, give us a rating, uh, tell other people about it, subscribe. And I also have the other podcast, which is My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Thanks for listening.